everybody and welcome to the latest edition of The Reset Show. Delighted you can join us and we've got a really good one for you today. We're joined by G, and I'm going to get this wrong, G, you have to correct me in a minute. My pronunciation is terrible. G will tell us how to pronounce her surname. Who is a fascinating background, ADHD academic, a specialist on particularly on ADHD uh, experiences of women and resistance to something called neuronormativity, which I think G will tell us a little bit more about in in a few few minutes. Um, Postdoctoral research in this area, um, specialists around kind of things like neurodiversity and accessibility. So really fascinating academic experience. And we're going to learn a whole lot of uh, terms that I've never come across before. So we're going to be talking about things like neuronormativity and neuroableism, and all will be revealed fairly shortly. So we're in for a really great 45 minutes. So thank you for joining us. Um, but just before I hand over to B, who is going to uh, do the introduction in a little bit more uh, in a little more detail than I have, um, just wanted to remind you what the Reset Show is all about. So for those of you that are new to the Reset Show, we started this about a year ago to really understand how we could uh, make best use of the opportunity that the pandemic has afforded us to do things differently within the world of work and perhaps do some of those things that we've always wanted to do but not quite had the opportunity to do before. So that is really why we're here to explore how we can improve the world of work for everybody. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to you, B. Thank you. Yeah, just a, a quick um, explainer really. So Jean and I met last March, I think it was the very first virtual get together I um, went to as, as, as the first lockdown sort of kicked in. And it was a get together, it was a virtual coffee organized by the IAF, the Institute of um, International Institute of, um, of Facilitators. Um, and Ju was talking about facilitating for inclusiveness. And it was a, a world of thinking and language that I just hadn't come across before. And we and we continued the conversation. And as we've continued talking, our conversations have ranged much further than simply um, facilitating for inclusiveness, have included many of the things that we're going to explore today, and also include the world of succulents. So my succulents are very, very glad that um, June and I've met and, and I've stopped overwatering them. So um, June, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, we've, we've done our best at a good introduction, but before we jump into sort of the more detailed questions, is there anything about you that we haven't said that we really should have done? Um, yeah, maybe it might be useful to think about that actually my background is activism. So when you and I met in the facilitation, uh, this, this kind of coffee meeting or coffee morning or something, it was more like a sort of um, or my facilitation experience comes from ex- activism and social movement organizing and really just from the ground up uh, learning uh, on the go in a way. And quite frankly, also my, my, my knowledge about accessibility, even though like I'm a bit more trained formally with facilitation, but accessibility is also just out of my own need and, and being a facilitator. So um, I try to be a bit more specialist, but I'm, I'm definitely not the specialist or, or anything, just a disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, cool, thank you. Um, 
And I love that. We've always had such broad ranging conversations. And today we've got a sort of three areas that we really wanted to explore with you. But we wanted to kick off with this sort of like, you know, this concept of ADHD and, and living on neurodivergent terms. And obviously this is the focus of your research. So tell us a bit more about that, what it means, what drew you to it, what you're seeking to learn. Yeah, thank you. It's it, that's a it's an it's an interesting question and and a difficult question in the sense that um, I've, I'm going to start my field work actually only in September, so I haven't done the field work in a way. So it's partially a question for me too because that's that's the whole idea of it. And I think what is really uh, complicated is the question actually like how how do we know how can one know what it means to be living on neurodivergent terms and specifically ADHD neurodivergent terms. The reason I'm saying this is because the framework in which ADHD is being made sense of both in academia and community and professional organizations is, although from the ground up, there's like different voices coming up, but it's really like, uh, I would say the medical model of disability is quite medicalized. It's all about um, fMRI scans and medication and diagnosis and symptoms and all these kind of things. Basically, ADHD on medical terms, um, if you will, and kind of, you know, ADHD is a burden, ADHD is as a problem, like how much money do we cost society, all these kind of things. Um, so basically, ADHD is live with a lot of stigma, grow up with like stigma, stigma, and like basically, you know, an accumulation of, of perhaps, you know, leading to trauma in a way. So like, what what does it actually mean? Like, how do we discover, not just how do we know what it is, but how can we actually live on our own terms in what I would call ADHD affirmative terms, right? That really center and validate and affirm the ADHD experience. Um, so yeah, in a way, I don't, I don't know. Um, and, you know, just to be clear, I'm an ADHD woman myself. So I'm, I'm doing this research. I came here as an ADHD uh, woman. So in a way, this is a question for myself, but it is definitely a research question as well. So it's it's quite frankly, it's it's an open question. And my interest in the research is 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 really to to see like how do other women do that? Like you know, how do they how do they um, give shape to that and understand it? Yeah, really interesting. So how much of your own experience are you able to bring into this research, or how much do you have to keep out? How do you how do you manage that? Yeah. That's a good question. And it's a question that's very um, alive for me, quite frankly, because, you know, um, obviously, I mean, most ADHDers, they come to a diagnosis um, or they come to ADHD through the community rather than very often the other way around. Um, you know, there's ADHD support groups. There's like, I think there's an ADHD TikTok. There's ADHD Twitter. There's ADHD Facebook groups. There's like this whole sort of bubble of, of ADHD, um, if you will. Um, so on the one hand, I really bring all the experience and like I say, my own activist experience and feminist activism and, and social and lens and, and theory and intersectionality and, you know, critical race and all these kind of, um, 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 uh, yeah, making sense of the world. So sort of like me looking at the world, looking at ADHD, reflecting on that, reflecting on um, ADHD lives and research, it comes from that. Like it's not just ADHD, if you will. So in a way I bring a lot. At the same time, there's this thing 
that I'm increasingly realizing is, you know, when you prepare field work, you have to apply for ethics, uh, ethics application, sorry, um, which is not just about ethical issues, quite frankly, but it's anyway, it's a short, shortcut. Um, and I started to realize that actually it might be, it feels unethical if I'm too much, if I continue to attend, for example, community groups, because it's, it's, mm -hmm. it just, it feels a little bit invasive almost. And I'm concerned that other ADHDers might think like, you know, with what head are you here? Like yeah. what capacity are you here? What are you doing here? So I'm really concerned about that. And also like people who might be, or like women who might be potential research participants and, and like, how am I going to navigate that? So in a way, I actually been withdrawing a bit um, from, from the community, um, if you will. Um, so yeah. like, it's really mixed. It's, it's complex. I'm not really sure it's very different from other types of research, but yes. um, what is different is that the community is, is much smaller. When you think about like 2.5% of um, the adult population in the UK are ADHD years or are estimated to be ADHD years. We have a one-on-one -on -one gender ratios or like, you know, 50-50 uh, men and women. Yeah. You know, the community is relatively small. I mean, if you yeah. think about the gay, the queer community or the gay and lesbians, it's also around 2.5, give or take, you know, it's very large. So it's, yeah, yeah complex. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Is that... I guess that's a big consideration to have to remove yourself, but even if it's temporarily from, from your communities in order to maintain the, the ethical standards of, of your research, that must be quite a price to pay, is it? Or is it, it feels just like the right thing to do and that's what you'll do for now? Yeah, I, I think it's, I'm not really sure it's just for research. It just feels more ethical on a kind of large capital E perhaps or something. It just yeah. feels the right thing to do, I suppose. Yeah, yeah let's see. I think with these types of questions uh, or, or things, uh, we'll, we'll see what the, the prize is yeah. <laughs> in a few years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, I'd uh, love to, um, this is a really big question, so feel free to answer it in a way that makes more sense to you. Because obviously we talk a lot about the world of work but we talk about humans at work. So it's not just like, you know, it's work or nothing. We talk about people at work and people's experience. So I'm really, really curious to just to understand if it's possible a little bit about your own experience of work as an ADHD woman. And I have to also just apologize. I don't know if you can hear the coughing in the background. I have a poorly child at home who is absolutely hacking his guts off. So I'm gonna just put myself on mute to allow you to answer that question. So gee, the question I was, I was sort of teeing up was just, if you could share a little bit about your experience of work as an ADHD woman. Yeah. I, because uh, you sent the questions beforehand, there's an, uh, an access, uh, accessibility need. So, and that, that was actually the question that made me think most. Because quite frankly, I think my journey is in a way not that, I mean, it's very different because all journeys are different, but most ADHD women, like who are diagnosed uh, in adulthood, like me, um, have a complex relation to work. <laughs> um yeah, and it's, there was always this feeling like, why am I not able to find a proper job or something like that? Or a job that, you know, is sort of in line with my interests and background and all these kind of things. And always like having this feeling of being inadequate, like doing the inappropriate things or just not knowing how to do the things that are you're supposed to do. Or like as if there's this mismatch and 
like I don't know, like a misunderstanding. Why is this not functioning really? Like how it should function. Um, yes, and th this was till I actually started my PhD. People think that I had a career. I had really no career um, proper <laughs> before I started my PhD. Uh, frankly, um, and I really don't want to return to that. Um, so yeah, it's 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 and it's difficult again when you think about living on, on your own uh, neurodivergent ADHD terms. Like it's difficult to make sense of that, and it's 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 looking back, it's trying to reframe how much of that was, if you will, neuroableism, right? Ableism against neurodivergent folks or anti-ADHD ableism, sort of not being able to live up to like these neurotypical neuronormative norms um, and not being aware of it as well. Like there's that, uh, that too, right? Um, on the other hand, like when I did my PhD, which took a long time because I'm multiply disabled, not just ADHD. Um, yeah, it was also lovely that in the teaching, um, you know, that's mostly how I earn my money next, next to that, uh, um, uh, scholarship there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of quality and skill they can put in and there's this like slowly I started to develop and this is where facilitation actually comes in the sensitivity of being disabled myself um like in, in a broader sense and having access needs and like how how because I've always been interested in facilitation coming from this from activism right and yes. a lot of teaching is about facilitation how can I make you know like how can I um, change change that um, if you will and and slowly thinking about oh wait this is not just about accessibility of the students it's about my accessibility right and if my access needs become more important I think very often the idea is that accessibility impacts other people negatively. Mm. But what about if accessibility of, in this case, um, seminar leader or teaching assistant or lecturer, at some point I was a lecturer, what if that actually benefits students? What if we actually can change a different classroom? And, you know, at some point I start to think about what does it mean to be an ADHD or what does it mean to be neurodivergent? What does it mean to teach in a neurodivergent affirmative or positive um, way, right, that benefits everyone for a variety of reasons, disabled folks, neurodivergent folks, but also people who are marginalized for other reasons, right? Um, so it became a way more constructive and positive experience. And, and this is where this idea of relaxed pedagogy came came about. And and, and trying, yeah, like try, really being able to experiment, you know, is, is quite lovely, actually. So it's, it's um, I hadn't actually thought about it like this the first time <laughs> thank you for asking <laughs> but and even this what happens now like because in the meanwhile I was talking I already forgot what you asked various times and you know like um I run two reading groups um yes. we can talk about it in, in a second and it's really interesting what creating new norms does yes. and um, like one of these norms and and like neuro norms, if you will, ADHD and autism, dyslexia, like affirmative norms. Um, so what does it mean if I'm teaching and in the middle I say, I have no clue what I was talking about. What was my question? <laughs> Can anybody help me? And not be ashamed of it or just be with that vulnerability and, and sort of 
see it as a collective experience in which everybody needs to contribute or is and is invited to contribute and you know really welcome when someone tells what the question was or just go like oh okay I don't know or like yeah, yeah. Anyway. I suppose your experience is is so rich in terms of its ability to make things clearer to people who aren't experiencing the world or the world of work in the way that you are because the nature of your work whether it's teaching or facilitating is all part of the people process so mm. actually bringing yeah. your experience and sharing that and making the experience okay for you as well as for everybody else is part of the richness of the people process that others can learn from so it's not something that you know if you're doing any other number of other jobs that your specific access needs whatever may just become a little bit invisible to people maybe Hmm. Yeah, and, and and actually, yeah, that's that's a good point, and it, it's 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 part of ableism, isn't it? Like we should feel shame. We don't we don't want to. Partially, it's it, it's good, but we we don't want to point out that someone has excess needs. Yeah, you know, like sort of like that, but also, in a way, part of the question. I already forgot what you asked. But let me just. It was, it was more of a sort of a statement, or a rambling statement, than a question. <laughs> If I, um, what was I thought now? Sorry, my th- my my thoughts are sort of physical. They just go somewhere, and then I have to sort of like find them. Um, all right. Well, there we go. This so, is neurodivergent um, participation life. <laughs> it's great. I'm I'm going to ask another question, then I'm just going to tee up to Emma. That Emma, I'm going to. I know that you're going to have lots of questions to ask as well. So, gee, I've got another question for you. This might be a really unfair question, but for people of us like me who are really new to this world some of these terms are like I'm, I'm I've got a good stab at what they mean but I might be a bit off target with my definition so terms like neuroableism and neuronormativity are you able to give us a sort of a layman's explanation of what those terms mean is that a really unfair question well no it's, it's not an unfair it's a very fair question because nobody uses the terms <laughs> Like, I think neuroableism, I just started to use it. Neuronormative has been used by others. But part of my background is critical whiteness studies. So, you know, you have like white normativity, heteronormativity. So I don't use it very significantly in a very significant different way. Neuroableism, I just see it as a, a part of ableism at large. And it's just a specific type of ableism. Yeah. So it's... it's um. But uh, yeah, I think um, so. But this is probably not very useful. I think <laughs> it's a bit academic um, <laughs> because I actually wanted to say, yeah, it's all up to us. Uh, what do we think? We have to, you know, but it's not very useful. So yeah, like ableism. I think you know when we think about racism, for example, it's really problematic or sexism to think of it only as in one-on-one interactions, right? Or just a thing that one person does. So it's more about seeing, um, seeing, you know, seeing the world as a system that is organized, is really grounded, like permeated, but you know, really organized. All the structures are sort of organized by ableism and, and, yeah. and like centering abledness, able-mindedness, cognitive ableism, mental ableism, physical ableism, all these kind of things and, and norms. Um, yeah. And, but also discrimination, um, exclude, you know, marginalizing structures, all these kind of things. And neuronormativity, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm moving a little bit away from these terms, but 
I think it's really about, you know, thinking about white normativity and heteronormativity. So like what kind of norms are there in society um, that center neurotypicality, like norms around neuroness? I don't know. I just invent this word. I don't know. It's probably not a word, but um, that everyone else has to sort of not just abide by, but we really have to internalize them and make them our own. And, you know, that those that, that is what is good. That is what we need to aspire. That is how we have to see ourselves. This is how we have to assess ourselves against, right? You know, like autistic folks, for example, talk about masking, right? And so like you learn um, to mask, specifically autistic uh, girls and women, you learn to mask and it's like, you know, a lifetime of unmasking. Um, but I think a lot of ADHD is doing this as well. Like to give an example, in academia, <laughs> you know, if, if this would have been an academic conference and I stopped talking halfway and the topic wouldn't be ADHD, right? Or neurodivergence. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I was talking about. <laughs> then people would sort of look at me like, oh, you're not reliable. You're not intelligent. You're not smart. You're not, there's something wrong with you. We're not going to cite you. We're not going to give you a job, you know, um, go on and further. And then there's all these, you know, ways how racism and sexism and classism operate. Yes. In, yeah. But even you can even think about it further. You can even like say, for example, how is racism actually grounded partially in neuro, in, in ableism, neuroableism, madness or ideas around that, right? Like how, how do they function through each other? Like, for example, very often, like uh, black and brown folks are seen as mad or seen as crazy, right? Whether this is true or not true is sort of irrelevant, or that's like how race or prejudice functions. Yes. Um, or whiteness is very often about rationality. And rationality is immediately already linked to neuroableism and ableism, right? Yeah. Or linearity, it's so neurotypical. Like yeah. you have to start at the start of a story. An introduction, then you have to give your argument, then the end. And ADHD years, they go like <laughs> very often like that. And then at some point, somewhere it ends or it just stops. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Like I know. Now. And I know, Emma, and I was going to come to you. I know there will be lots coming up for you in terms of thoughts and questions. Oh, cool. Thanks. Thanks, B. Um, yeah, really, really interesting conversation. Um, what, what I'd love to get into is. So what, what can we do in the world of work? What can we do to make the world of work more inclusive, not just for people with ADHD, but for people who may be neurodiverse in other ways? What are the practical things we can start to do? So you talked about social norms, for example, starting to change the social norms, but have you got any other thoughts in terms of what we can practically do to, you know, to be more inclusive? Yeah, no, actually. Um... I'm I'm very not a practical practical person in that sense, and I'm a little, a little bit more leaning towards you know revolution and the system needs to change and all these kind of things. And you know you have to follow these steps, and that's it's not really my my take on things. But uh, you know just to be clear, steps are really important and urgent. And without all these steps, my life would have been worse. And with more steps, my life is better, and so are others. Um, but uh, since that's not really my activist or academic orientation, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move it a little bit, bit back and just say, I think everybody has to start with a question, how am I a problem? Mm. How is what I do a problem 
you know, to others, like an individual, interpersonal, structural, systemic level. And I think that's quite frankly the best question. And not get, you know, like we all are a problem, like all the time for others, right? Or what we do is problematic or quite frankly, almost nobody is exempt from that um, uh, reality. So just think about um, like how is my life and the way that I function and my company functions and relations and, you know, how are meetings organized? How, how do they, these are, how are these actually expressions, you know, from neuronormativity, like norms and and habits and practices that that just have been constructed over centuries um, here in the UK, really. Um, And educate yourself, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, um, and try things out. Because I think the good thing about realizing is that we are all a problem one way or another at some point or another is, well, if we try things, the best that we, any words that we can achieve is we don't achieve anything. And the best is that we do achieve something or we do it wrong and we learn something, right? Mm. So I think trying things out and, and yeah, not seeing things as a checklist, really, but like, you know, in facilitation, it's, it's all relational and it's all about what's, what's in the moment, what is, what's there. And that's where we start with, that's, what's, that's what we are with and that's what we can change, right? When you facilitate a group, you have to know who's in the room and what's in the room and where is everyone in the room, <laughs> literally, but also kind of in other levels. And that's where you start and like, yeah, like what, what, what is in a room that we don't see? Like, um, and, and quite frankly, willingness. Like, because if you're not really willing to stop forcing people coming to meetings, <laughs> really no point to making any changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I, mean, I love the, the, the challenge of, you know, the problem starts with all of us and, and educate yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place to start. Um, I suppose I'm just reflecting, thinking out loud because I my, my husband is is a ADHD and you know he he, he did he did work for a while in the corporate world, but then when he was able to get out, his 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 answer was always like, I'd rather stick pencils in my eyes than go back into work in the in the corporate world. So I'm I, I'm just one, I don't know, I'm just I'm thinking out loud here, right? And I'm wondering if if there are some good stories, good examples of where the corporate world is able to, to, to make changes to welcome people with different needs, such as ADHD or, or, or whether it's Asperger's, whatever it might be from a neurodiversity point of view, or if you just go, you know what, that's just, if, if you're a, you know, whatever your needs are, that environment's just probably not going to work for you. And, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just kind of reflecting on that. I would love to hear from other people about that. Um, I think it's not just it's not just work; is it's education as well. Education is not set up for people that have any kind of neurodiversity either. That's a whole other <laughs> research show. Um, yeah, it'd be great to hear from the people around. You know what what we can do in the world of work to make it more inclusive. And I think um, one of my um, barriers I've always found. I, I mean, I've been working in. It's not my air expertise, but I first worked in the field of diversity inclusion back in the 90s. And I worked for a big utility company and I got to work on the on the diversity strategy and I was completely new to it and I had no idea what I was doing. And one of my big aha moments was 
I'm so frightened of offending people and upsetting people because I want to, I so desperately want to say and do the right thing, which is a whole other whole whole therapist dream right there, that I will kind of step back and say nothing at all. So what help can you you give us? Neurotypical my, it's my husband's term, he calls me a neurotypical. What what can we do to have more of an open, constructive conversation around these sorts of topics? What what what, what works? How do we get better at talking about this stuff? Get curious about it. Sorry, as a, I'm just kindly going to ask everyone in the room who's not talking to mute themselves, if that's all right. <laughs> okay, um, so this is one way to talk about it, is to just ask and um, know that you might get um, a negative response. And in a way that that's for everyone, isn't it? So I think it's it's about, quite frankly, listening. Listening and and um, not having an idealized sense. It's something that I've been thinking about lately a lot. Is I think there's a kind of idealized idea around um, perfectionist and and quite normative idea around what does it mean to support others or to, to generate accessibility or contribute accessibility or accessibilize, let's call it that. Um, and, you know, as if it's something that you want to do or are happy to do. Quite frankly, my, my sort of point of departure is grumpiness. I don't like change that much. <laughs> um, unless I'm the one generating it. <laughs> So I get slightly grumpy. Oh, I have to do something for someone else. Oh, I don't want to think about that. Oh, this is how I do it, right? That is my internal response. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sharing that to, to um, what is the word? To um, sort of like move away from this pedestal of charity, charity work almost, if you will, right? So I think it's really about listening and listening to yourself and, and just be realistic about what your response is and what your lack of knowledge is, which and even or and even or even acknowledging that you just don't know, right? And to just start somewhere. Um, sorry, like um, in in um, sorry, let me just pop it down. Because like in response to your first question, because I was a, still a bit stuck with the, the corporate, like I worked in the in banking, <laughs> um, if you believe it or not. But um, and I have some positive and some negative experiences. And but uh, some work, I, you know, there were parts I was really quite good at, quite frankly, because it 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 had a kind of an environment or a pace, like really quick and deadlines and you know a lot of variety, a lot of out of the box independence, all these kind of things. It really fit me. Um, you know, like I also worked in a supermarket, or well, not a supermarket, like a, a um, how do you call it? Is it a um, like anyway, um, something similar? And it, it just bored my brain out. It was terrible. <laughs> like it's it's it was shattering. You know, like made my mind collapse. So yeah, definitely not very fit for that. You know, not everybody's fit for every type of job, and I think that's fine. Um, but the point is. We only know that if we try to make it fit for people who want to work that and who do have capacities and skills and background and aspirations and all these kind of things, right? I mean, the, the really annoying, quite frankly, my perspective, 
examples are that, you know, secret services are really eager for some Asperger's, you know, probably white male Asperger's uh, folk or Asperger's folk. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, uh, not really. I, you know, I'll be really honest. I'm not really a fan of the police state, policing state. Um, you know, like in the entertainment industry, for example, in the arts, there are a lot of ADHDers, as far as I think. Now, I'm sociology writing. You're supposed to write really long, or that's what I do, um, pieces of academic writing. And I'm a, you know, I'm a postdoctoral level. That's not super accessible. That's not a very common pathway for, for an ADHDer. Mm. So, but there are parents I'm really good at. So the, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very gray area and, and most of it is kind of the point of departure is not, you're not fit here, but we are likely not completely fit for you. So how can we change mm-hmm. and where can we start this change and thinking through, well, maybe you need neurodivergent folks for this to really think through things very methodically and really see the whole box and what is outside the box. And because we see things that other folks might not see. So there you go. You need us. Um, and then, you know, and like, and, and, and just like every day is a new day and every day is a moment for change, really. Like it's, um, again, like I say, I'm not very practical and kind of, it's not really where I want to go, but. No, it's, 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 it's interesting. I think that's a really good point. Um, how do we, how do we, help companies get much better at understanding the strengths. I mean, we talk about the strengths that come from having a diverse workforce, that's a given, but I think a layer above that or below that, whichever way you want to go, is that the strengths that different neuro, uh, elements of neurodiversity bring, exactly the point you just made around, you know, people like Asperger's are often see very intuitive. I'm not going to kind of generalize it. I think companies, but, in my experience, aren't good at spotting that or going, hang on a minute, you'd be great at this. It's a kind of a very one-size-fits-all approach to recruitment often and maybe a few psychometrics thrown in for good measure, but, you know, they're not that useful in many cases. I, I, on the one hand, I agree with you because we all should, in any company or organisation, should have an approach to what strengths do you have or what strengths can you develop, what skills, what qualities, capacities are there to, you know, grow. Um, I'm very reluctant to talk about strengths that neurodivergent have strengths for, for two reasons. One is, it's part of the burden the deficit model. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, we're deficient, we're a problem, we're a burden, but hey, we have strengths, so you can use us and you can capitalize and monetize and all these kind of things, all right? But it also assumes that neurotypicality is strength, right? And that neuro, like, it like really is it? Um, that's a good question. I don't have an answer. Yeah, again, I think you get into such an interesting discussion around this. I'm going to hand back over to B in one sec for uh, for the comments because we've got some great comments coming through. Um, I have this discussion with with my husband and my son often who are both Aspergers and. And my son certainly sees his Asperger's as a superpower and he gets, but, but my husband doesn't. So even within our family, there's kind of opposing views. So it's a really good debate to have. On that note, Bea, I'm going to hand back over to you for some of the comments and to carry on the, carry on the questions. Thank you. Yeah. And so if I go on mute or, or just jump off, just because somebody's decided to start digging up the road, 
almost exactly to coincide with the beginning of our conversation. So that was amazing timing. Um, but it's so fascinating. The conversation in the chat is almost entirely in parallel to the conversation that we're having as well. So similar points coming up about, you know, celebrating um, strengths in, in different forms of, 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 of neuros. And, you know, so for everything from dyslexia to this idea of, the language around again the language of is that we should get away from the language of overcoming difference and recognizing you know what it does bring to the table so it's sort of similar track of conversation there as well but your points g about you know whether that is a is a useful approach or not again so much more that we could discuss here and probably no one definitive answer on that i just wanted to do turn quickly to what some of your things that you're doing alongside your research project at the moment and i know that you run the this intersectional um, neurodiversity reading group and an intersectional disability reading group and that you facilitate those and you talked a lot about sort of almost you know, learning to facilitate for accessibility as you've gone along so not claiming to be an expert but the things that you've learned so my question would be, you know, what have you learned from that experience of facilitating these two reading groups? Hmm. I think that um, Well, I think the most important thing I would say is that we don't really know. When I say we, um, that, that really includes visibility environment is like, what does neurodivergent, neurodivergence affirmative facilitation looks like? How does it function? Because a lot around accessibility, um, it's around disability really uh, in a physical sense very often or um, vision or hearing impairments and I happen to have fluctuatingly both to some extent um, yeah I had another thought but that's gone so the be actually the, the most important thing what I learned is how relaxed it is to facilitate those reading groups in comparison to facilitate um, where the majority often is neurodivergent and or disabled in comparison to having to go back to the abled neurotypical worlds and facilitate there and having all these barriers and other norms that I, and it's interesting because you actually started with a pandemic um, and, you know, ending up with a lot of neurodivergent folks around me um, and having all these Zoom contacts, quite frankly, um, forgetting almost about other norms. Like, I think there has been a, for me personally, a sort of, yeah, not unpacking, but, you know, like you forget things. I don't know if you've had this. It's with, with any stuff. I've, let me give another example. When I'm on the road, sometimes I, I start to walk on, on the wrong side again. Like, I come from the Netherlands. The right, or the right side. But, um, you know, like, because like traffic, you know, idea of traffic is goes goes back to where it was a long time ago or something like that. But but there is also this like there have been new norms have been created. And like, for example, if I'm here, not in a neurodivergent environment, no offense. Um, and all of a sudden I forget something. I feel myself tense up and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do this. Right. Oh, I shouldn't look around. 
And when I facilitate those environments, for me as a facilitator, it's more relaxed and it's more relaxed for others. And it just, how it, be, how it can become like, not just a jacket that you put on, but like ingrained that there are multiple ways that you can participate and contribute and validate it or be critical or not and know and don't know and all these kind of things and be nonlinear. Um, it feels really existential. I feel like I'm going really deep, but that's what it feels like a little bit. And then there's like all these practical things about facilitation itself. I'm happy to talk about that as well. Yes, please do. Yeah, I mean, practical tips around facilitating for inclusiveness would yeah. be really useful. I know that we've touched on some of the conversations that mm. we've had. So those practical tips. Yeah. Be- like, for example, everyone being on mute who's not talking, right? Because definitely like the Zoom environments and for me being around in quiet, but for others, I, I hear this from, from so many people, it's everything is like a sensory, becomes a sensory overload and becomes really difficult to concentrate, right? So things like that, using the raised uh, hand uh, method like that, right? Uh, in started, because, and because like turn-taking is really complex for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, that is one of the things um, that we use, for example, um, we actually turn off the chat box so people can um, chat, like they can send a message to me, but not the chat box at large because it interferes with screen readers. Um, but it also really impacts neurodivergent folks because like, I, like even you saw it with me, like I, I just get distracted um, and I can't multitask in that sense. Like that's really difficult. Um, so it becomes like a conversation, interaction sort of on the side that I can't really um, do. Um, so yeah, like these are the things that make things more accessible. But also, for example, as long as I know as a coordinator who everyone, who's everyone in the room, people and people have to introduce themselves um, so that everybody else knows who's in the room, you know, because folks who are vision impaired, for example, they don't see, they don't know how many people there are. So there is sort of like verbal guideposting, um, if you will, as well. Um, so people have to introduce themselves, but they can have the camera off. Um, we have a listening only list now that developed. So at the, at the start, um, you know, I write down names and I'm not going to cold call on anyone. It's also something that I started uh, actually in teaching. Um, so, and people can still contribute, obviously, but there's not this like enforcing that you have to vocalize, you have to be, do that. Um, and also that people can, um, you know, write whatever it is that they want to say to me in the chat and then I say oh this is G for that person is actually my my previous uh, co-organizer of the disability reading group um, um, Kelsey Acton um, who sort of suggested that so um, either because someone doesn't um, uh, speak vocally but they they write so that's not the way that they contribute or maybe they're anxious or whatever um, so yeah so they can contribute in writing for example um, Ah, another thing is that, and this started with a screen reader, uh, you, sorry, like folks vision impaired, who first of all, don't necessarily know who's in the room, right? Um, so I say how many people there are at the start, like people introduce themselves very briefly. Um, but also when people start talking, they say, this is, and then they say their name. And when they finish talking, they say, 
end of speech or end of thought or end of talk or whatever um, it is. Um, and um, that way, other people know that they might uh, be able to start talking. So it helps to know for the person who cannot visually sort of um, experience who is talking, they know who is talking definitely when it's new voices, right? But it also helps for neurodivergent folks for the like turn taking, like you don't wanna, you know. Um, uh, but it, what interestingly, it brought something else. And I think that is a kind of really dynamic, organic way of you know, developing a more neurodivergent, neurodiversifying facilitation is um, that I realized that if you say end of talk or end of, uh, sorry, end of thought, that was the initial term, it, it, it was a really neurotypical um, norm because maybe your thought is not ended, but your speech is ending because you don't know where your thought is going or you don't know where your thought was. So why not leave that and just be very practical and realistic about what is happening? Maybe you stop talking and that was it. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's other things like always trying to support. For example, there might be people who find talking too long or like don't want to dominate because it's really important that accessibility is intersectional, you know, like um, not just white people talking, not just uh, uh, um, uh, men folks or cis folks talking, um, you know, all these kind of things or neurotypical people talking. So like, how can I help you, you know, to be facilitated or something like that? Like, how can we have conversations around this? So it's it's kind of like trying to be interactive around that as well. Mm. There's so many, so many great tips there and just things that just weren't on my radar at all. Um, you know, and I've been learning about and talking about and, 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 and actively facilitating for years. So it's quite shocking that some of this stuff is so new um, and so rich. So thank you so much for sharing. I've got one last question for you. I know that you've got a really interesting event a webinar on disability and race that's just coming up and this is a, a flipped webinar and um, I've just had a look at what you know what to expect from that and it just looks brilliant so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah definitely so again the flip webinar um is again to make it more accessible um, both for disabled and neurodivergent phones but also for non-academics or students um, so it consists of blog posts that are um, uh, go online actually tomorrow, like a week or more before the event itself. And then there is the event itself. And in our case, we decided to not have presentations. So people are expected in a way to read the blog post beforehand. It will just a brief summary of like 75 words. Um, and then it's, it's like 20, 25 minute Q&A basically. Um, and the audience um, can submit questions till the 7th of July. They will be sent to the contributors, the panelists. And again, this is also so everybody feels prepared and, you know, and doesn't feel like sort of overwhelmed. Um, yeah. So in terms of the program, um, I can pop the link in the chat just uh, in case. Oops. Oh, that's wrong. Give me, sorry. I'm doing. Thank you. Thank you. And, and for the listeners, we'll make sure that we um, include it. If you've subscribed to the podcast, we'll make sure that we add the link to that in the follow-up email as well. So thank you. So the, yeah. the blog posts go live tomorrow and the actual webinar is on July the... Yeah, Friday in a week, 9th in the okay. afternoon. Like four panels start on the hour. 
And uh, there's, for example, like a whole panel on ADHD and race. The program is changing a little bit, so I can't say too much because it goes live tomorrow. <laughs> I'm having it in front of me. Uh, historical reflections or social movement, policing, education, um, non-recognition of racialized disability, uh, uh, research, co-production, um, reflexivity. Um, yeah, it's it's. I'm really excited about it. It's yeah. just amazing. I just um, got really drawn in when I just went in to have a look at the descriptions of what to expect, got really drawn in and thought, wow, you could definitely spend a very good quality afternoon discussing these amazing topics, which were many of which were very, very new to me. So I wish you all the best with that. I will um, finish. I'll come back to Emma in just a moment, but I just wanted to finish you just to say thank you so much for joining and um, I've loved getting to know you over the last few months and exploring, as I say, so many new areas for me. And um, it's just been brilliant having you on. And um, so big thank you from me, um, Emma. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I really enjoyed Thanks, it as well, yeah. Yeah, massive thank you, G, for coming on and uh, educating us all. I say it's, it's, a, it's a huge topic and something that I think we just are all just beginning to, to learn a lot more about from our, our point, from my, from my point, I won't speak for everyone else, from my point of view. So thank you for that. Um, and I'll definitely be, be checking out your webinar because that looks fascinating. Um, and just before we finish, so much thank you to G. Huge thank you to, to Belinda for co-hosting duties. Um, Justin's on a little sabbatical this week. And as always, big thank you to Katie for doing the, the production in the background. Um, so next Thank time on the Reset Show, it's the 14th of July is our next one. And we are going to be talking about HR versus racism. So, um, yeah, just a small topic there for us to get our teeth into. It should be a really good one. We're really looking forward to this. We've got uh, Nicole Dessin, Anika Cornelius and Kendra Jackson coming on to talk about this topic enlighten us and again i know that i'm going to be learning loads on there so uh come along 14th of july as always um share the podcast like it if you can any reviews would be great and we hope to speak to you all soon take care bye